Past, present, future, live. In-depth conversations and exclusive live performances featuring some of the most dynamic artists from the world of contemporary music. From Osiris Media, this is Past, Present, Future Live. I'm your host, RJB. This week, we bring you an interview with Rebecca and Megan Lovell of the band Larkin Poe. Rebecca, Megan, and their sister Jessica started off playing music at home and got a break on Prairie Home Companion in their teenage years. That led to several years of touring as the Lovell sisters. Then Jessica left the band and Rebecca and Megan put out an EP as Larkin Poe in 2010. Their awesome guitar playing and beautiful singing has made a mark on the roots rock music scene, and their latest album, Self Made Man, is a testament to their unique sound. They took creative control and produced these last three albums themselves. We talked about the unique partnership they have as sisters, the influence of live music and festivals on their careers, and what it's been like breaking through as a female-led band in Southern music. After the interview, you'll hear Rebecca and Megan play Who Do You Love, She's a Self-Made Man, and Holy Ghost Fire. And there's a Spotify playlist for this episode in the show notes. If you like what we're doing on this podcast, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And thanks for spreading the word. And I want to say a quick word about Sunset Lake CBD, our great sponsor. I use their gummies every day. I drink their coffee. It makes me feel calm and relaxed. Believe me, you got to check it out. Get 15% off your first order when you go to sunsetlakecbd.com and enter the promo code PPFL15. Now let's get into this interview with Rebecca and Megan of Larkin Poe. All right, I am here with Rebecca and Megan from Larkin Poe. Hello. Hi. Hi. Nice to talk to you both. We're going to talk about a bunch of new stuff, your new album and the, the singles that have come out recently, but I want to start way back and ask if you each have a first musical memory. Oh, yes. Baby sis, I'll go first. This is Rebecca. And um, we're very fortunate to have come from a family of big music lovers. Our mother was always playing baby Bach tapes for us in the car, and she definitely supported the uh, the classical angle of our musical education. And meanwhile, our dad was playing every rock record under the sun from the Allman Brothers to Black Sabbath to Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, if you want to call them rock, which I would. But I remember distinctly one of the first songs that I learned the lyrics to was 4 and 20, um, which is written by Neil Young off of the CSNY record, I believe, or maybe it's a uh, Judy Blue Eyes. I can't remember which records it's off, but uh, Dad and I would sing that one together. And I think I was maybe four and a half, five years old. And this is Megan. We were three and four years old, I think, when we began playing violin. Yes. Um, and I do have a very blurry memory of taking lessons at that age, but you probably would have been too small <laughs> to really remember at that point in time. Well, I remember it being very exciting, but in terms of actually playing, there, <laughs> you can't count like three and a half year old doesn't really play. I think when we were four or five, we had like our first recital and I remember being extraordinarily nervous Aww. for it. We have pictures and Megan was dressed in, we were actually all dressed in these little pink puffy silk dresses that her mother had got for our recitals and we, lo we looked the part man we were like spick and span but the violins were still cardboard that's how small the violins were that's amazing so i, I have i have almost four-year-old twins and they are not at all 
up to the task of like you know holding a tune or playing instruments it, it, that's like really early to get into it and I, I guess I'm wondering did your parents have a plan to like turn you all into musicians did it feel that way or was it just part of how you were raised no I think if anything um the fact that we decided to enter into entertainment industry as a full-time career was very stressful for our parents they were never stage parents I think they always saw it as a glorified hobby they really enjoyed seeing us um, be very passionate about something. So they've always been incredibly supportive. Mm -hmm. But in terms of doing it for a living, I think that has caused them immense, you know, gray hairs over the years. And our, uh, yeah, our mother than. has a, a beautiful voice and um, and she plays piano a little bit. And I think that she just wanted us to have the option because I think she would have loved to have taken lessons yeah. herself. That's amazing because it feels like reap what you sow, right? <laughs> Getting you into music so early. And from what I understand, the Suzuki violin training method, right? That's like pretty intense. Yeah, I think it was pretty intense. Um, there is a lot of structure, which I think was beneficial in some ways and then maybe not so beneficial in others because following our, you know, dip into the classical waters in our early, like early teens, you know, we were like, what, 12, 13 years old, we, we got involved in bluegrass. Mm -hmm. And so whenever we began to discover more Roots American music and to try our hand, we understood very little about spontaneity, about jamming, because we were so bound to sheet music as classical kids. So I think in a lot of ways, it was it was a great way to start, you know, it gave us great ear training mm -hmm. and pitch. Um, but there was also a lot to unbraid in terms of structure and, you know, appropriateness. Well, I consider <laughs> that I was only a passable violin player. Sure. So I do feel lucky to have discovered dobro at that point in time in early teens because I, I do feel like that was what I was kind of meant to play. Mm -mm. What caused that like discovery of bluegrass or what led to it? Did you all discover it on your own? Was it a family thing or... If I remember correctly, it was a family thing. Um, and I'm, I'm a bit surprised it didn't happen earlier, actually, because we're, you know, we were from East Tennessee. Our folks listened to a lot of bluegrass records, but we'd never been to a festival, like an Americana festival, until we were, what, 12, 13 years old. And so that was, I think, our first family experience together of fully understanding wow, this is an amazing culture. This is an amazing yeah. style of music. The festival was Merle Fest in North Carolina. And yeah. it's just one of those festivals that is so amazing to go to. It's so well run and mm. um, just will always hold kind of an iconic place in our hearts. Yeah. That and Delfest are like the two amazing bluegrass festivals that I know are, are always awesome. And so when you're growing up, you were homeschooled. I know you grew up in Georgia, right? And there was music around the house. Were you playing music together at a young age? Yeah. Yeah, we did. Um, we played classical violin like we did little trio violin performances <laughs> that's how we made so we were granted an allowance um and so we would get you know maybe 15 dollars a month from our dad to if we wanted sodas or treats or whatever <laughs> but whenever we were offered a gig to play as a classical trio i think that was one of the first experiences that we really it lit oh, us on we fire. Can, we can make money from this. <laughs> yeah, we were actually hired um, for a wedding. And then additionally, we were hired to play Christmas carols by our orthodontist at 
I guess his competitors branches across Georgia. So our mother was kind enough to drive us to like six different spots where we set up and played some classical violin trios. And that man, bless his heart, he paid us $50 a piece to do it, which was great money. But best part of the story is he gave it to us all in $1 bills. So we all had these <laughs> so big it rolls of cash. I will never forget. That's like such a kindness to a kid to give it all in ones. Though our mother was kind of like, that doesn't Why feel quite right. Why was it all in ones? Wow. Right, right, right. That's, that's amazing. Um, so skipping ahead just a little bit, you had the opportunity to go on Prairie Home Companion at age 14 and 15 or, or somewhere around there. How did that come about and what happened after that? Ooh, um, a family friend suggested that we submit a demo tape because they were taking demos from bands for this um, 10 to 20 you know, teen talent competition that a Prairie mm-hmm. Home Companions, Garrison Keillor, was doing on his show. And on a whim, we kind of just submitted. At this point in time, we weren't a band. I mean, we had never really played a gig. I think we played one. Yeah, as like a picking party. Yeah. But we we had formed the Level Sisters and we had like learned a handful of bluegrass songs. So we were still very new bluegrass yeah. musicians. So we, we figured out how to record a couple of tracks, sent it <laughs> in and got accepted to go on, on this program. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think we really realized how big of a deal it would be because, you yeah. know, to have 2.1 million people listening to you, that's, you know, kind of big time big right deal, off the yeah. bat. Yeah. And, uh, we ended up winning that competition and people assumed that we were like a real band who knew what we were doing. And <laughs> we ended up touring just about full time in that first year because we had so many offers coming in it just sounds, from playing on the program. It, it sounds so preposterous when you're trying to explain it because it sounds like we would have had a clue that it would be a big deal. But in all honesty, we were just winging it along. And a lot of it, I think we can lay credit at the feet of our big sister, Jess, because I'm the youngest of the three. And between the three of us, there's five years. So at that point, Jessica was like 19, 20. And um, she was really organized, really like, really, she she would be like a perfect band manager. (laughs) She's gone on to other things in her life, but she was always that detail-oriented sister and really got us some super cool opportunities. But yeah, at that point, we then somehow started booking dates and traveling around in the family suburban and it, and it all just kind of felt normal, you know, but it really wasn't. That's crazy. So, so that's just from people who heard you on Prairie Home Companion and were like, oh, we got to get these sisters. Yeah. So yeah. We, we, we ended up playing a lot of performing arts centers and really posh gigs. No, looking back at it, <laughs> I mean, I don't think that we really appreciated fully what we were doing, mm. you know, because we were playing these these really, really nice theaters all over the country. Um, and little and being little children doing it. And that's what's so funny is when you go back and watch tapes, you know, we're very, we're very professional and, <laughs> you know, we think we're styled super cool and, um, but you just don't realize we're so young and so much of it's, it's very endearing to look back at. But again, this kind and, of, and embarrassing, but this level of cluelessness, <laughs> there's just this like mirage of cluelessness just interspersed among each child, you know, but it, very good memories. You're mm-hmm. teenagers. I mean, I don't think anyone as a teenager knows what's going on. I didn't. I, I, I still feel like, feel like I have a tenuous grasp on exactly what's going on <laughs> right, now right, as a 29-year-old, right, right. so I'm like, right. bless my heart. So at that point, were you like, this could be a career? I think Megan and myself, we started harboring secret ideas that it could be a career path, but it was never something that we would have told our parents because, again, our parents you know, are both medical doctors and... Um, it was not the choice that was going to be made in their book. We were daily reminded that it was, you know, in fact, a hobby and the concept of not putting all one's eggs in one's baskets and all, everything of that nature. But yeah, I think at that point, 
we started toying with the idea of really enjoying the whole process and everything that went into well, it. Well, it would have been in 2010 that Jessica decided to leave. And, you know, she just decided music wasn't really something she wanted to do with her life. Mm-hmm. And at that point in time, we had to decide, are we in, in or out? And it was a pretty obvious choice that we were in. Yeah. That we're kind of, we're lifers. So you mentioned that your sister, Jess, left, it was around 10 years ago, right? When that Mm -hmm. happened? Yeah. Was that a big event for your family? It feels like the three of you playing music together for so long, and then suddenly one of the three of you is gone. Was it it traumatic at all? In some small part, it felt a little bit inevitable, because when there's three sisters, there was a bit more of a triangle. You know, like people can gang up on others and... We weren't nasty to each other as sisters ever. Like, Mm -hmm. we all absolutely are very close friends and get along, but I do think it was a bit harder to maintain because, you know, the social dynamic of a band on the road, it's it's like a little snow globe. Like, if you just jerk it a little bit, then all those little bits of snow come flying up and you can easily get lost in some some clouds. But Megan and Jess, they, they, you know, we're very close in age. They they can... (laughs) kind of argue a little bit so I think it was kind of like hey this is probably for the best like we're not having as much fun and and I think what was important to us was making good memories and having good sister relationships absolutely our our number one goal was always to be good sisters first and everything else came after that and so for us we were we were concerned about her being happy yeah Um, and so I don't think it was terribly traumatic Mm -mm. Probably the most traumatic thing was who was going to be the lead singer because <laughs> we're, both, Poe, yes. we're both solidly like musicians mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Um, we had to decide who was going to do the lead singing because Jessica was the lead singer. She, so when she left, suddenly somebody left. had to do it. There was a void that had to be filled. And so as a little sister, Megan told me that I would in fact be doing the lead singing and here we are 10 years later. You were all in, as you said, because you put out an EP, I think, shortly thereafter as Larkin Poe, right? Mm-hmm. And what led you to get a new name? I mean, you could have continued, I guess, with the same name with only two of you. Were you recreating the band? Curious what led you to choose a different name? Yeah, we wanted a family name, of course, mm-hmm. but um, I think it did feel right. We wanted to have a, a new fresh start. We wanted to be a new thing together and uh, picking a family name felt very natural as well, Larkin Poe being our great-great-great-great-grandfather. And I would love to know, you know, if Larkin Poe could look down and see his T-shirt, you know, on <laughs> his name on T-shirts around the world. That'd what be really, think? really interesting. But also people had trouble pronouncing your name. They didn't know if it was Lavelle or Lovell or, or Lovell. Lovell. It's actually it's Lovell, Lovell, but Lovell. it would often be Lavelle. So we just... Figured. That's why I haven't said your name since we started. If you I know, noticed. it's one of those last names. It's so easy, you know? There's like eight different ways. I've heard it a bunch, and then I was like, wait, which one is it? So Larkin Poe is the name of a basically like a distant relative, right? Yeah. Great, great, great grandfather or something? Mm-hmm. Four greats grandfather. Yeah. Four greats. And who was related to Edgar Allan Poe. That's what I read. They yes. were cousins. They were cousins. They were cousins. Mm-hmm. So that's cool. So what, what did it feel like putting out that first EP as a new band? It felt it felt very vindicating, if you will, because, I mean, as the Lovell sisters, we were predominantly, I guess, in the spirit of most bluegrass bands, more of a cover band. 
you know, there's like a traditional bluegrass repertoire and everyone kind of plays songs within that category. But we had started toying with writing our own songs. And so to have a deadline for ourselves, because we're very goal-oriented people, mm-hmm. and we're like, hey, we need to put out a record, let's do it. We want to put out four in a year, one for each season. So that was, I think, a really good uh, kick in the pants in terms of a baton death march of like creativity, if you will. <laughs> you know what I mean? We were like really nose to the grindstone. Let's figure this out. Let's learn a lot really fast. So getting that first one out on schedule as we had planned and making the art ourselves and kind of doing the whole thing, it felt it felt like basically exactly what we're doing now 10 years later. <laughs> <laughs> we wanted to put out those four EPs to kind of get ourselves going down the path of, of figuring out what the voice of Larkin Poe would be. Mm. And I think that Larkin Poe's voice has changed pretty drastically over the years because that first year of EPs was very... Um, Still very acoustic, had twinges of bluegrass, but it was also a little bit more pop-leaning than we had ever Mm -hmm. um, done before. Um, So I think it was great to kind of push that down the road of figuring out what Larkin Poe was going to be. And that's been kind of a work in progress for many years. True. You have a lot of pride in your Southern roots, I think, and pay tribute to a lot of Southern music. And you're both really awesome musicians. Um, And I was curious about what you wanted to communicate through the music when you started putting out albums? In our minds, we've always been sort of the intersection of roots music and rock music. We want to to represent more of the classic rock side of us because we did grow up listening to so much great music that is still so ingrained in us. So we wanted to represent more of the Allman Brothers side and the um, you know Led Zeppelin side of us, which meant plugging in and it, it meant getting drums, which is something we never had done before. Yeah, and I think whether or not we would have even realized this at the time, I think the choices that we've made in terms of genre have really been bent towards leveling a playing field. Because at a certain point when you realize the uh, the number of female artists that you can listen to in the rock sphere, especially in the classic rock sphere, are so limited. And you're like, all right, I got Bonnie Raitt, I got Hart, you know, I got The Susan Runaway, Tedeschi. Susan Tedeschi. But, like, there's not as many women to pick from. So I, I know that that had to have been a driving factor for us, wanting to prove people wrong, wanting to do something that felt a little bit incongruous, like shoving ourselves square pegs into round holes. That actually has always been something that we've enjoyed doing. Yeah. Megan, you play the Dobro, right? Yeah, I began on Dobro, but then when we began Larkin Poe, that's when I switched over to, to Lap Steel. So essentially, you know, the electrified Dobro, if you want to think about it like that. That sound is really prominent in bluegrass music, but I think when you plug it in, it's a, it's such a different feel. What's it like for you to, to, to play an instrument that's not as well known? It can be frustrating at times because I think people don't really know what it is that I'm playing. Um, but it is a sound that people are familiar with. Like David Lindley's Running on Empty Solo, it's one of the more iconic rock guitar solos, but it's actually a lap steel, it's not an electric guitar. And I don't think a lot of people realize that. They think about pedal steel, they think about lap steel more in the country world. Um, and like, does it belong in the rock world? And it's like, it absolutely is one of the most versatile rock instruments that you can have because it can be so vocal, it can scream just like an electric guitar can, and then it can also be kind of down home bluesy and bluegrassy. So to me, the right hands, it all comes back to you being a really good player and being able to be versatile. But I find it really interesting, this is me popping in inappropriately perhaps, but 
it's almost like we have a second lead singer in our band. That's what I, I find so interesting about your choice in really not wanting to be like a singer-singer, except for harmonies, mm -hmm. which, of course, is a huge part of our sound, but really Megan contributes by being the second lead singer of our band with, with where you play and, and the interaction that my vocal has with your playing. It's really, it's very special. And yeah, it's definitely been something that we've developed over the years is like, I, where do, how do our voices fit together? And mm -hmm. I mean, like my voice on the lap steel, which is, a, ha, does have a very vocal quality and it occupies a lot of the same range um, melodically that her voice does. Mm. So figuring out how they kind of work together has been so fun, I think. Keeping the peace. <laughs> you two are so nice to each other. It's great. Man. There's a lot of love. We're lucky. I mean, we've obviously, we've argued our fair share, um, especially in our early 20s. But at this point in time, we're like the best of friends. And there's a lot of mm -hmm. trust that has been built over the years. And yeah, it's very important. The most important thing about the band, probably. Yeah. It's hard to know where I end and she begins. Like, we're very, very close. Always. And but since, like, that's been there since babyhood. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. That's so cool. Um, Rebecca, what about your guitar playing? Like, Do you share the same kind of sensibilities in terms of what you wanted to communicate through playing? I feel like I've had a long and winding road in terms of my journey of being a guitarist because guitar hasn't come so naturally to me. Um, it's probably a function of having picked it up a little bit later in life and it being strung so differently than a lot of the instruments that I grew up playing. Because I was traditionally a mandolin player in the Level Sisters, which is strung the same as a violin. So there was a very natural crossover from violin as a child into mandolin. And I always played guitar, but I played it in the bluegrass sense of being a rhythm guitarist. I was never focused on being a lead guitarist because I was so focused on mandolin. But coming into electric guitar, at first I really disliked it because I think when you're, when you're an acoustic musician, sheer volume is just something that you're not used to, to dealing with, you know. Do you remember that first show we played Plugged In? Oh, that it was, was terrifying. Like, so scary because it was so loud. So loud. <laughs> now we're just, we're wizened and deafened and... Oh, we're deaf. We're completely <laughs> deaf. Evidently, we're one of the loudest live bands that yeah. some people have ever mixed, so... <laughs> but Which is great. It's true. You got to make a point, right? But <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I think once we became a little bit more at ease within the electrified world. I've really understood the power of guitar and the real estate um, in terms of melodic range on the guitar, and I love it. So I, I really have been focused on writing guitar riffs because I, I listen to Soundgarden and you know Black Sabbath. And in my mind, and I think people could fight me on this, they might, but <laughs> there's a very like slim line between really heavy metal music. Like when you listen to Black Sabbath and you listen to the guitar riffs that Tony Omi was writing, and then you listen to bluegrass, like, I mean, old bluegrass, like Ralph Stanley, and some of the note choices and the structure of the riffs to me are very similar, and I've always really enjoyed playing with that, sort of the dissonance of mountain music when writing riffs, and so taking some of that sensibility and injecting it into the blues rock thing that we're doing when writing riffs, um, that's always, I know, in terms of music, been a really big focus for me. So the first album that came out uh, was 2014, Kin, and you've put out a bunch of albums since then, and, and Kindred Spirits is the most recent in 2020, well, A Self-Made Man also, mm, mm -hmm. both this year, right? Yeah, both this year. So that's a lot of albums, and, and Venom and Faith, which came out in 2018, was nominated for a Grammy, 
so you you've been hard at work how has your like how has your sound evolved from your perspectives maybe since that first album kin that came out in 2014 to the newest albums i think first off what occurs to me is that we have become a lot more intentional i think especially from a songwriting perspective when you're young you're very precious about the songs that you write when you're i should say when you're a new songwriter everything that you write feels holy and like oh my god this is i've written the thing and it's and it's done, it's there. And you, you're like scared to mess with things. When in actuality, I think the beauty of songwriting is that writing is rewriting. And it's mm-hmm. being willing to go in and edit yourself and critique and change and tweak and pinch and pull and nip and tuck until it really represents you. You know, very rarely, unless again, you're somebody like Tom Petty, who comes out of the womb, I said this before, mm-hmm. out of the womb writing hit songs. Most of us, the mere mortals of the rest of the world, have to like learn how to be honest with your writing. I think I sense that in our one of the biggest transitions from 2014 to now, we're a lot more down to earth about the work that goes into creating something special and, and being comfortable with that work and doing that work. Mm-hmm. What would you say? Another big shift has been self-producing the albums because mm-hmm. um, Kin and Reskinned were both produced by third parties. Um, and then with Peach we decided to start self-producing. Yeah. Um, so that's been the past, well, I guess four albums now. I was going to say three, but ah. now with Kindred Spirits coming, it's going to be <laughs> it's going to be four. Um, and that's been a huge change because I think that we're really able to put forward what it is that we're wanting to put forward with these records because we've always been kind of chameleons in the studio, I think. Like we, we're kind of people pleasers. We want to fit in. We want to kind of give people what it is that they want. We've ended up playing with a lot of artists over the Mm -hmm. years as side members um, in bands. So I think that kind of comes from those experiences. Um, But self-producing has really forced us to figure out out what it is that we want for Larkin Poe. Yeah, well, it's two disciplines of thought, right? Like when you're a side guy, you are literally training yourself to be a puzzle piece that is changing to fit into the puzzle. And whenever you are an artist, it's that question of sticking to your guns and really having that artistic integrity and being willing to change for no one. Is it hard to go between being a musician and a producer of your own stuff? I think we're lucky that we do it together. So in that way, it's not very challenging. Mm -hmm. It's second nature. It's kind of like we're having a conversation in the studio together. I think so. I mean, I think we kind of keep each other honest and it has been many years of really wanting to push forward this idea of the best idea wins that you have to kind of take ego out of it, out of the equation if you possibly can. Mm. Just on the songwriting front, I mean, are there any barriers between like your personal lives and the musical life because you all are so close or is it all kind of part of one big conversation? That is the thing about being an independent musician. That's the big thing is is there definitely is no line drawn. I think most days, you know, I'm a fairly early riser and so I'll be up at, you know, 6.45 and then I'll be working on band stuff from probably 7 until 11 every day, most days. And it's all different, it's different jobs. Um, if anything, it, what gets in the way of making music and writing music is the responsibilities that we have squarely lifted onto our own, our own shoulders of producing the records 
making we, the art, managing the social media, running we the are, record label. Yeah, because we have our own record label, so we fill all those roles now. We, you know, are the graphics team and the video editing team, mm. and we make all the cover videos, and so it, it, it definitely is a it's all several revolving. full-time jobs. But it, it all revolves around the music, which I think we couldn't do it otherwise um, because it would be too, like, paper pushery, but... Yeah, it's pretty all-consuming. Um, and I think especially add to that that we both married musicians. And it's obviously what we want. It's what we like. Like, we always wanted to, you know, we're the first generation of music makers in our family, and we wanted to have more of that in our lives. And I think that we've done a very good job of manifesting that. <laughs> <laughs> That's really cool. It's awesome to be your own boss in multiple ways. But then that means that you have to kind of do everything. <laughs> it's true. I mean, and... We've always had the school of thought, and this is a direct pass down from our folks, is when, when you do it yourself, you know that you really care. And we really care about this deeply. We don't always love it. You know, it can be a bit much sometimes. It can be very intense. But, but we consider it a major gift. Oh, like, yeah. That's only in the weak moments where you kind of resent it a little bit because you're like, yeah. this is, do I even have any hobbies outside of music? <laughs> no, like, I'm not a normal person. What's wrong with me? And you're like, well... Yeah. We've been built by the music to be who we are today, and I, and I wouldn't change that. I want to ask about like the sense of place, because I, I talked to so many musicians for this show who had big geographic shifts, like they you know, moved from New York to L.A. or vice versa, or a lot of people that I've talked to have moved from somewhere to Nashville, and you all did that too. When was that, and, and how did that change the way you approached music? Well, we were born in Tennessee. We were actually born in Knoxville, and then our folks moved us to Georgia. So coming back to Tennessee happened five years ago. About five years ago. Give or take. And it actually changed very little. We love hmm. living here. Um, I hmm. still drive past the Nashville skyline and I get just giddy because it's really exciting to live here. But um, typically we tour so much that we're not home to experience. It's been interesting to actually be in Nashville for the changing of multiple seasons because normally we're just not around to see what it's actually like to live here full time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but now we've seen spring, summer and fall. So it's, mm. it is, it is pretty cool to see. Yeah. Uh, it's like we actually live in Nashville. <laughs> and I think we've actually, for the first time, gotten to experience little nuggets of, of being in Music City, USA. Like just last week, we went over and did a socially distanced songwriters in the round at the legendary Bluebird Cafe. And that's actually streaming right about now and and that's pretty cool to to live in a city and to be able to drive 20 minutes from your home to a legendary really big, venues yeah yeah iconic venue so that that's that's pretty awesome and um in, in those ways i think the focus on the song here in nashville you have some of the best songwriters in the world that make their music here that weight and that focus is very inspiring to be around even if it is peripherally and at the edges we're kind of loners. We're kind of outsiders. And that's something that we, that's been by design because like you mentioned, you know, having grown up being side guys and, and being very influential and having that be an asset, it also is a bit of a detractor when you get other people's opinions in the room. But it is, it, it continues to only go farther because this last record, Kindred Spirit, that's coming out November 20th, um, we actually made it here at my house. So we didn't even go to a studio. Um, we just set up here during quarantine and in the span of five, six days, popped it out, you know, and recorded it live, which was a new thing for us. I mean, normally we've been making records, just the two of us, but she would program a lot of it like ahead of time, mm -hmm. program like the drum elements and the bass and the yeah. keys and stuff. And um, this time we just decided to just do it, do it live. Like we, like we have been making our cover videos, the cover yeah. video series that we do. 
more of a bedroom thing. Did that feel different to record live? Very different. It's so funny because we haven't had the opportunity to tell this story very much because it's so new, but we actually made this album, Kindred Spirits, twice. We made it once going to a studio and recording it more in the traditional fashion of Larkin Poe, where I, you know, got heavy handed with some programming and made some stuff. And, and we had literally recorded 11 or 12 songs. And uh, one day we got home and we had some champagne and cheers ourselves for having finished the album. And then we listened down to it <laughs> and we decided it was not right and that we needed to do it again. Um, talk about an emotional roller coaster. Um, tears in the champagne, we should write a song. <laughs> <laughs> but then, then we did it all again um, because it didn't have the, the vulnerability that we were looking for. It didn't have the push and the pull that I really think makes us as sibling musicians very special. That there is this kind of a push and pull between us when we play in a room that wasn't being expressed on that original version of Kindred Spirits. And in a lot of ways, it's harder to record live. I mean, because you have to just do it until you get the right take. But I, there may be no, in, no going back, because I think that overall, we really, really enjoyed this recording process even it's, more than... It sounds so much more human, you know? There's not as much room to nitpick or perfect or sand off the, the rough edges that are actually the, the, the edges that, that show your humanity. Mm. We have always viewed record making and stage performance in two very different realms. So trying to bring the two together has been a bit awkward and a little bit scary for us, actually, because it does take a lot of chutzpah to commit to a vocal take in the room, like, especially for me as a singer. I sing, you know, passably, pretty consistently pretty good at shows and stuff, but I felt like it would be hubris for me to expect to sing good enough, and I'm, for the listener, I'm doing that with air quotes, good enough for a record, which is, of course, absurd when you take two seconds to look at it, but hey, man, you know, you just got to... You don't know what you've done until you figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> Looks to me like you all, since you put out the first albums or the first EPs, really, you've been like on an upward trajectory. Have there been setbacks or challenges that you faced as a band as you've evolved? Oh, my gosh. So Cer many. Certainly with um, COVID, that's been a very interesting challenge. But I think even like the first five years of Larkin Poe, any sane person would have stopped. Mm -hmm. You know, we had five years of this weird, we were like kind of trapped in a spell of, we were completely impervious to all abuse as, you know, early 20s. And Well, uh, you know, it's like we went, when we went on Prayer Home Companion, like I was saying, we were play playing like the posh theaters. When we, when we started Larkin Poe, we went back to ground zero and had to figure out how to build a band up from the, from the ground. And so we were playing some pretty crappy tours at that point in time. And losing you know? lots of money. Losing and, money you and, know. you know, yeah. staying in not ideal places. Oof. And and four, you know, boys and girls, eight people to a room. Ridiculous stuff that, you know, that you can only do when you're idealistic and you really have a, a fervor for the dream. And not that we've ever lost that, but we certainly are lucky to have burned a lot of of energy when we could, because I think probably we're a bit too rational now. We'd be like, this is doomed, get out. <laughs> the ship is sinking, we need to get off. Where is the lifeboat? <laughs> I 
I want to ask about the live performances because we started this podcast company around the live music scene. And I know that you all have played at Bonnaroo and Mountain Jam and Lollapalooza and Glastonbury and lots of other places. What's it like going to those festivals as musicians and also as music fans? Totally overwhelming. I mean, especially something like Glastonbury. It really is a high to play. I mean, it's pretty amazing to be on a lineup that's really iconic, like Glastonbury, Lollapalooza, you know, Bonnaroo. Mm-hmm. And, and the pressure is always on for those gigs, too, because it's like it's one thing when you're playing at a at a theater or a club and you have, you know, eight hours to get set up and do your thing and get ready. But uh, the pedal to the metal, I think you really sort out the boys from the men at a festival because you're really seeing people under pressure. And, and I, I think that we always really enjoy that, just mm-hmm. kind of busting it out, rolling the dice and seeing how it goes. And in 2014, you were the best discovery of Glastonbury by The Observer, which is pretty cool. That was very cool. We were, you know, four and five years old having to do violin recitals. We, we have been conditioning our armor for the entirety of our lives. <laughs> um, I want to ask you about being in a band as two women, as the front people. Do you see yourselves as being on the forefront of female-led bands? Like, do you see that as a responsibility for you all? And do you see yourselves differently than bands that are led by men, which almost all are? I can't tell you how many times we've rolled into venues and had venue owners look to our backup dudes and direct the questions to them. Because there is, there's absolutely still a very pervasive gender inequality in the entertainment industry. And that at a certain point, you know, it's so frustrating. You've had it up beyond, you know, had it up to here too many times to where you don't have any here's left. And, and you realize all that you can do as a, as a performer is to be truly who you are and to call things out as you see them. And when our English language is tailored towards, you know, gender stereotyping success with a phrase like self-made man, Something that I myself said, and Megan has said years and years as a compliment. Oh, you're such a self-made man without ever having a whit of a thought of the fact that you are absolutely attaching maleness to the concept of success. And that's really problematic. And the only way that I think that you can, as a female who time and time again has had people look at the poster and they see two relatively attractive women with guitars and they come to the show and they say, oh, I just... I had no idea I was going to enjoy what you guys were going to do. And it's totally different than what I expected. And, you know, you're like, well, what were you expecting? That's the question that I think we're tired of asking. And so instead of asking anymore, we're just going to tell people that we're self-made men and be very confident in that. And to, in, instead of, I don't know, playing the game, just make your own game. It's time to have some of these, these inequalities and these you know, burned out old habits just cast off and and you move on into the future where there are a lot more women involved in the industry. I do think that we are a part of, you know, we're a water drop in a wave of women that are crashing down in the music industry. You know, statistics are out there and you can see, wow, women are really underrepresented in the industry in terms of the production roles and the engineer roles and the songwriting roles. Sorry, but maybe, I'm like really but maybe not, not for long. Because not for long. Fender said that, you know, women make up 50% or more of new guitar buyers. So. Which is hey, what we love. They're coming. They're coming. We're coming and you know what? The world's <laughs> not going to know ahead of them. The music industry is really dog-eat-dog. It's not, you just know, for anybody, man or yeah. women eat women. It's dog-eat-dog and it's just hard for anybody to hang in there and, and make a decent dollar doing it. And so for us to reach this point in our career where we can afford to live, afford to pay our bills, make records that we feel passionate about, 
be really good friends, have a really incredible fan base, that's just success for us. And I don't care how you qualify it, you know, and that's, that's the biggest takeaway for us, yeah. You've toured with a lot of bands that, that you all, I think, like and are fans of. Are there memorable experiences of performing with people who you've looked up to or who you grew up listening to that, that have happened in the past several years? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. For me, um, because we have been afforded a lot of incredible opportunities over the years, but for me, a big one happened this year, actually, in the spring. Before the world was shut down, we flew to India for a blues festival I'm in Mumbai, and we got to get on stage and jam with Buddy Guy. And that was awesome. Incredibly nerve-wracking because Buddy is 81 years old, and absolutely, the crowd is eating out of the palm of his hand. And, you know, you're trying to get up there and say something meaningful with your guitar. Um, So the pressure was on for that one, but incredibly rewarding to just be on the same stage as him and to watch him do his thing. That was incredible. Oh, yeah. How do you approach something like that as a guitar player? Um, You dig deep and and you try to just say something the way that you would say it, you know, because I I obviously am um, not our lead guitarist. Megan takes a lot of the solos. So from my perspective, it's try not to just fall flat on your face, to be honest, because you're just like, oh my God, I'm not worthy. <laughs> Honestly, a lot of it's just the confidence game. Totally. Like you just have to go in there and even if you don't feel it, you have to just pretend that you are confident and most likely things will work out. Yeah. Because you can play a wrong note. Like that's the kind of the worst that you can do is you just make a mistake. But just you've just got to make that mistake as loud and as proud as you can possibly make it, and it's gonna be all right. Yeah. We're always our worst critic, and that that it, it's a waste of time to even allow yourself to get bogged down. But um, but yeah, it's definitely there's a temptation in those moments to just shred, 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 and instead you're like, well, we don't want to shred. We want to do something meaningful. Let's just make it count. What's been a, a big one for you? There's been so many over the years. We've been really lucky to play with a lot of heroes from George Strait to Bonnie Raitt to Mm. Elvis Costello has been one that has been many years. I mean, we've toured with him, what, eight of the past 10 years, probably. So that's so many memories Mm. touring with him because we were on the His Detour tour where it was just the three of us on stage. And there's a lot of lot of memories from that tour for sure. I know in 2018, I only have to ask about this because I'm from Northern Ohio, which is like, I'm from very close to Detroit. And I know you guys toured with Bob Seger. Mm. <laughs> and I read an interview where you talked about that experience. What was that like touring with, with him? It was beyond exciting to get offered the gig first and foremost, because we'd never played arenas at that point in time, mm. ever. So to level up into that type of a venue just put us into a tizzy of excitement. Um, but getting to watch Bob perform every night Um, I have an utmost respect for Bob as a songwriter, as a performer, and as a general inspiration, because when you go back and you watch a lot of interviews of Bob, the way that he represents himself in interviews, which is man of the people, he's like, you know, saving his cash, not getting crazy with a big bus and a helicopter. Like, he's like, no, we just get in a van and and we're here because we want to play music. And that type of level-headedness has always really um, appealed to us specifically, I think, because we're not drama queens. Like, we're not 
We're not like, oh my God, the girls were out and there was track marks in their arms and their mascara was running and they're so badass and rock and roll. It's like, no, the girls are well rested and they're well hydrated and, you know, like they're, they're, oh wow, their hair is clean. Like they look good. They look pretty healthy, like for being to our musicians. And so I think having a role model like that, who's wholesome and, and there for the music, not for the lifestyle, that's like Hmm. 101. Nice. (laughs) We love, we love Bob Seger till the end. Megan, what about you? Did you, anything from that tour that you would add? It's actually something that we have been lucky to see modeled in multiple performers that we've gotten to do extended tours with, which would be, you know, like Elvis Costello, Keith Urban, Bob Seger, um, is that they leave it all on stage. Mm. Like they give until there's nothing left every night. And that's been uh, something that to learn from mm. is that you, you, you don't hold back. You give it your all. Yeah. And even before the show begins as well, because, I mean, we're 28, 29. Well, I guess at that point in time, 26, 27. And it's easy to be jaded, you know, to like when you're at a festival, you're trying to conserve energy for your show. And so you maybe don't go out and see as much music because you're like, I don't want to talk. I need to like make sure I'm like in the, the zone for performance. Every night that we would get on stage and open up for Bob, Bob is stage right, down in the shadows, bopping along, listening to us play. And this is somebody who is, you know, 60 years deep in their career. Yeah, he would always come out. He would always come out to see us play, specifically Preachin' Blues, the Sun House cover that we would do. Uh And um, we got the tour because he he saw us playing that song on Facebook. And he was like, reached out and was like, I I want you guys to be on the tour as long as you play Preaching Blues every night. (laughs) So every night we would dedicate it to him and he would be there bopping along. That is great. Energizer Bunny. So let's quickly talk about the future. Um, I guess as the live music world is in questionable future, what have you all been putting your creative energy into since the pandemic started? Alternative ways to connect with fans. Mm -hmm. I think that's been the real push of 2020 is in a world that is shut down, how do you maintain human connection? So I think spending a lot more time making videos and doing live streams and being creative in the ways that we're releasing music. Ironically, I think we've actually had more direct connection with fans than we have even maybe at live shows. Like we've just really embraced each other online, which has been pretty cool. But then also, um, I don't think that we would have had time this year to make a new album, um, which we, well, two, actually. Two. <laughs> Only one's coming out, but being able to go back into the studio has been a real gift as well. Yeah. It sounds like you are, like you're ready to go back in and, and do more songs. What, what's next? Are there things that you, that you still want to do that you haven't been able to do? Essentially, I think the next 50 years, if we're so lucky to have 50 years of, you know, of working and making music. It's going to be exactly what we're doing now, just the same as, you know, 10 years ago when we were making the album packaging ourselves and dr- scheming up things. Like, we're, we're big schemers and dreamers, and so to, to just continue to manifest the things that we see in our mind's eye, that will be, I think, what the future holds for us. We're going to be in our little wheelchairs, <laughs> matching hers and hers wheelchairs, <laughs> wheeling out to the stage. <laughs> Any music that you've been particularly inspired by listening to recently or any music you've discovered that has been moving you both for me i have to i have to give credit to my uh, my husband's band tyler bryant and the shakedown they just made a record and it's awesome they also similarly made their their album here in the home studio so i for 21 days was in the house uh, making music here in the kitchen because it's the farthest point away from the basement studio where they were setting up with full 
full drum kit and, uh, and band and rocking out. And that's endlessly inspiring for me, I think, getting to watch him make music and I love their records. This one coming out's great. I got the future on a song on it too. Crazy Days. Y'all should listen to it. Yeah, it's great. Megan, anything that you've been listening to? I've been actually going back and listening to a lot of classic rock. What's so interesting is no matter, even if no new music was made, we would still have so much listening to do. So I've actually been kind of going back and, and listening to some of the classics and kind of familiarizing myself with some of the classics that, that I actually haven't like dedicated mm. time to listen to. Mm. But in terms of new music, we got to shout out some pioneers, I think, in the, in the bluegrass field. If, if people are not aware of Molly Tuttle, Sierra Hull, or Billy Strings, go and avail yourselves of the talents because those are like the lifeblood of, of new bluegrass music coming out. Really incredible musicians. Yeah. Uh, Sarah DeRose, fantastic Negrito, on the, more on the like blues rock side. Really, really good stuff. Awesome. Thank you for sharing those. Those are all great recommendations. Um, the last question is, if you all had to give yourselves of 20 years ago some advice what would you tell yourself you're both very young so i guess you would have been like nine or ten but you know what, what would you tell your yourself at that age learn spanish <laughs> <laughs> because it's so much harder when you get older to learn new things anything that you want to do like learn very practical. now learn now while your brain is still plastic yes please i love that that's very that's, practical i know it's kind of sarcastic i don't know megan what would you say Oh, it's very cliched, but like be yourself. I know, I know that's kind of lame, but to be valuable, you don't have to be what you idolize. Like when listening to my hero, like Jerry Douglas, like I thought I needed to sound like Jerry Douglas in order to be valuable. But as a player, it's like you have something to offer Mm. in the things that come naturally to you. So just embrace that and do that. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you both for taking so much time to talk. This has been really fun. Congrats on all the new music coming out and stick around and you'll hear some music from Larkin Poe. So thank you both for joining. It's been fun. Thank you so much. And now here's Rebecca and Megan performing Who Do You Love? She's a Self-Made Man and Holy Ghost Fire. Like a little 
y'all, I'm Rebecca. And I am Megan. Together, we are Larkin Poe. Two roots rock and roll sisters, originally of Atlanta, Georgia, now of Nashville, Tennessee. We want to play for you a song off of our most recent album, Self Made Man. This is the title track. It's She's a Self Made Man. together and we wanted to write a song about the healing power of music and how important that is to us. This is Holy Ghost Fire.
side of the road Thanks for joining us. Past, Present, Future Live is hosted and produced by RJB. The executive producers are Adam Kaplan and Kirsten Cluthy. Production, editing, mixing, and original theme music by Brad Stratton. This podcast is presented by Osiris Media. Please visit OsirisPod.com to find more content and deepen your connection to the music you love.